0: It's a little past five o'clock when the whistles begin to blare. Out to the west, a train carrying several boxcars, roaring forward at 45 miles per hour. And to the west, another train also carrying several boxcars, also roaring forward at 45 miles per hour. Both conductors lay on their whistles, but neither shows signs of slowing down, let alone stopping. A few seconds later, the crews jump out into the Texas grass. It's September 15th, 1896. And two 35-ton steam engines are headed, full speed, towards a head-on collision in the middle of the second-largest city in Texas. And between them, a man, atop a white charger, looking out one way, and then the other, down the tracks, smiling. Everything is going according to plan. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Boomtown. The dude on the horse was William Crush, general passenger agent for the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, which was popularly known as Katie. In 1896, Katie had a couple of seemingly unrelated problems. The first had to do with money. Three years earlier had seen the Panic of 1893, a deep economic depression caused in large part by the railroads. Throughout the 1880s, railroad companies had gone on a spree, building up lines in every which direction, regardless of whether anyone wanted to go those ways, and buying one another left and right. During the panic, a quarter of the nation's railroads went out of business. Employment fell, and many Western settlers gave up farms in Kansas, Nebraska, Montana, the rest of the Plains states, for reasons we'll get to later this season. By 1896, the economy was beginning to recover, and Katy was standing on pretty firm ground. But still the question lingered in the air. What could railroads do to grow if people weren't moving west anymore? The second problem had to do with innovation. Trains were getting bigger, faster, more efficient, and Katie had been improving their fleet with the newest engines. That left them with an incredible number of obsolete models that they didn't know what to do with. Soon, the ends of the lines were piling up old clunkers. To these issues, William Crush formulated a two-birds-one-stone solution that... Uh, boy. (laughs) What adjective to use here? Audacious... Ludicrous? Ingenious? Insane? It's hard to pick just one. Crush's idea was for a publicity stunt. Set up some track, a couple of tents, distribute some flyers, buy some ads, and then run a couple of old trains into one another, full speed, as advertising for the railroad. So Crush... (laughs) Wait, let's take a minute to really examine the stupidity here. Starting with... Can you think of a worse way to promote a mode of transportation than publicly displaying the worst possible outcome of riding it? It'd be like a commercial that showed a plane falling out of the sky on fire. United Airlines, now that you're thinking about the most frightening aspect of our services, maybe you'd like to upgrade to business class. Not to mention the danger. What company would consciously purposely stick a whole bunch of civilians near a giant train crash? Obviously, the answer is Katie, because otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it, would we? It's amazing. Every aspect of this story is like a metaphor for another aspect of this story. Crush created this plan that was so obviously terrible that could only end in tragedy, and everybody just barreled forward with it towards its inevitable conclusion. Like two runaway trains headed straight for one another. So gird yourself for whatever the opposite of surprise is. This thing is going to go down exactly as you imagine it would. Well, until the end. Okay, round
1: two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire! Huh? Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Chum-a. That's right, chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Wanna learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Crush proposed his idiotic venture to the higher-ups at Katie, and they bid on it hard. The event would be free of charge, but they'd locate it somewhere that you could only reach by their trains, and they'd charge two bucks a ticket to ferry the slack-jawed masses down to the explodey trains. They chose a vacant plot about 12 miles north of Waco, and built a stop there on the Dallas to Houston line. Crush, Texas. They took out advertisements all around the country, in newspapers, and, of course, on their trains and tickets. Crush found two obsolete engines, number 999 and number 1001, and painted them up, one red with a bit of green, and the other green with a bit of red. Then Katie drove them around all of Texas for months, teasing the coming locomotive battle as they went. In the beginning of September, the building began. A four-mile stretch of track for the collision, two water wells stands, platforms, a grandstand, two telegraph offices, and along with the main event came the sideshows. Ringling Brothers Circus made its way to Crush, along with a whole bunch of acts, stands, games, shows, and attractions from the Midway that had thrilled the globe a year earlier at the 1893 World's Fair. There were a dozen lemonade stands, at least one restaurant, and a wooden jail manned by 200 Pinkerton agents. As the event drew near, it became the singular obsession of people for hundreds of miles around. The organizers anticipated 20,000 people would attend, but by 10 a.m. there were already half that, with fully packed trains continuing to pull into the newborn city of Crush every five minutes. The main event was planned for 4 p.m., after the bands and political speakers and circus performers had wrapped up. But it had to be delayed, in part because people were still arriving, car after car until there were at least 40,000 people waiting. The other reason for the delay is that those 40,000 people refused to stay away from the tracks. Crush insisted the general public be stationed 200 yards from the track, although he was fine with the press being as near as 100. But the people were crowding, pushing their way closer and closer. So the constables were called in to move the line back to the safe viewing distance. At just after five, the word was given that the show was ready to come underway. First the trains were brought together at the center slowly to clink cowcatchers like boxers touching gloves before a fight. It was ceremony sure but it was also an opportunity for JC Dean a photographer from Waco whom Crush hired to commemorate the day to get some good shots before the anarchy. Then the trains backed up all the way down the track and out rode Crush on his white charger waving his hat to give the signal to begin. Imagine a hot, cloudless September afternoon in central Texas. The mass of people from all walks of life, doctors and tradesmen, lawyers and laborers, banded together to witness a singular act of senseless destruction. Anyone who was anyone and everyone who wasn't. Even Scott Joplin, the great ragtime composer. The circus freaks and hucksters, the hoochie-coochie dancers, the acrobats, singers, medicine-barkers and vendors, all fallen silent and all staring breathlessly forward. People stood on tiptoes, lifted children onto shoulders, crammed their necks for a better view. A boy, Ernest Darnell, climbed to the top of a mesquite tree. And then they heard it. The chugs, the whistles, thrumming and screaming, growing louder, growing closer. The trains, each towing five boxcars painted with advertisements, had a max speed of around 45 miles per hour, although many there that day swore they were moving much faster. The conductors and engineers bailed, leaving the throttles and whistles fully open. There's only one way this can end, and it's coming up fast. As they got within a quarter mile, the bangs began. Fireworks, placed at intervals along the track, shot off like machine gun fire, almost drowning out the already deafening screams and roars of the engines themselves. As quickly as that, almost quicker than onlookers could register, the moment was here. A thundering crash, metal rending metal, timbers shattering into splinters. Some say the trains reared up on one another, like battling bucks, and fell over. Others say they slammed straight through, becoming one mess of mingled wreckage. Then, there was a silence. For a few seconds, and they must have felt like very long seconds, it seemed like the doomsayers and hand-ringers, the people like you and me who reasonably expected the worst, had been wrong. That everything had gone according to plan, after all. Until the boilers exploded. In one unfathomably large crack, whatever that was left of the two vehicles was gone. Steel and wood and boiling water rained down and shot out. J.C. Dean, the photographer, was struck straight through the eye by a flying bolt. Ernest Darnell, up in the mesquite tree, was hit in the head by a large chain hook. It broke his skull. He fell to the ground, dead, along with two others. Dozens more were hurt, hit by shrapnel. "'scalded by the boiling waters, burnt by flaming debris. "'The panic was almost instantaneous, but it flowed in two directions. "'Those hurt or afraid to be hurt fled away in a stumbling, cracking horde. "'Less reasonably, the second crowd that ran towards the wreck, "'hoping to pick up souvenirs which they soon learned were too hot to hold. "'The doctors who happened to have made the trip "'set up makeshift triage units to aid the injured. "'The trains that had brought the revelers in quickly started moving the wounded out in August of 1896 there was nothing in crush Texas there was no crush Texas at 4 p.m. September 15th it was the second largest city in the state and by the following morning it was gone just a pit of wreckage and William George crush was out of a job summarily fired by the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad for the debacle they had helped him create. Then, the folks at Katy braced for trouble. Lawsuits, government investigations, and, worst of all, bad press. And that's where the surprising part comes in. Because all those obvious consequences didn't happen. No investigations and no lawsuits either. Katie quickly and quietly settled up with the casualties and their families, who were apparently pleased with the going rate of $10,000 and free train rides for life. And the press? Overwhelmingly positive, effusive, and voluminous. Throughout the country, papers wrote glowingly about the crash at Crush and the amazing Missouri-Kansas-Texas railroad who pulled it off. Scott Joplin even wrote a song about it. Great Crush Collision March. A few days later, William George Crush was quietly reinstated. He spent the rest of his career with Katie, until his happy retirement several decades later. All of which leaves Crush, Texas in a paradoxical no-man's land for our purposes. It's the story of getting something tragically wrong and having it go triumphantly right anyway. From that player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, Chicago, Illinois, this has been The Constant.